Last night is always a little bit bittersweet. Um, I know, but we're gonna do a lot of stuff tonight, so don't worry. We didn't. Uh, we're not gonna slack off this last week. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna go for broke. So um, we're going to be getting to all of your homework assignments, including and especially Psalm 22. So don't worry, we're gonna get back and cover all of those. Uh, so what I want to do is get through uh, the biblical material as quickly and efficiently as we can, and then spend some time at the end talking about application and discussion and what's kind of how this sits in the modern day. So we're going to kind of review slash make sure that we're all on the same page for tonight. So I, all the way through this class, we have been tracking different symbols and how they stack on each other and how they play into each other. And so there's there have been a couple of major strands of symbolism. One has been, we would call it maybe the bad ones or the good ones, right? The, the exile and the exodus or the creation and the destruction. So uh, you know, we started out talking about the sea and how in the ancient world the sea was a symbol of death, of chaos, of danger, of uh, sort of a, a complete loss of structure and form, uh, a place uh, of, like we saw with Jonah in particular, death, right? When he goes down into the sea, that's going down into death. Um, we also saw then, we talked a lot about sin and uh, the turning away from God, and particularly in a lot of the Old Testament, how that was manifested as idolatry, which was looking towards any other god than Yahweh for their, for their life. And the idea was that, um, that no other god except for Yahweh could create life, could give life. So uh, we got a lot, a lot about sin uh, and that kind of symbol, sin and death and all that kind of stuff. Um, that all culminated, we saw, in the exile story which was where uh, Israel, because of their idolatry, because of their refusal to be faithful to God, ends up completely destroyed. And we talked about how for a lot of the Israelites, they experienced this as an apocalypse. So if you sort of stack all these symbols on each other, what you get is this idea. I know I made a sun that's blacked out over there, right? And a moon that's turned to blood because those are common apocalyptic images that the New Testament gets a lot. But the idea behind those is that Creation is becoming undone. You know, what does the sun do? It shines. If the sun has stopped shining, that means that creation is being unmade. So that the language, the apocalyptic language that you get there is really that that unraveling of the creative order. It's that chaos and death, you know, swooping back into God's good world. So you get that. And that's really what you see on the cross. You know, the cross is that experience of death. It's that experience of exile. Like we talked about, like, you know, Jesus being crushed by the empire on behalf of Israel under the weight of idolatry. So all, all, you know, all of these symbols that we see as a constant strain throughout the whole scripture is the consequences of not following God, the consequences of not partnering with God and, and following God's way and God's lead. And that all culminates on the cross. And we have this moment where it seems that Jesus, Jesus experiences abandonment by God, right, where he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, as we talked about last week, and I just kind of left this for you to do in the homework, that is not just a random thing that Jesus said, right? That is the first line of Psalm 22, which was a song that all of the Israelites would have known really well. We'll see in a couple of moments how well they actually knew it. Uh, so the, here's the thing about songs, right? Songs are very different from most other kinds of art in that songs are instantly memorable. So do a thought experiment. Imagine you're watching a war movie, right? Like Saving Private Ryan 2 or something like that, right? And it's that part in the movie when everything is really, really, really bad. You know, it's the end of Act 2, and you thought everything was going to be okay, and then something terrible happened, and now you're like, I don't know how this is going to work, because, like, some of the main characters seem to be dead, and everything's bad, and it looks like the USA is going to lose, and, and then all of a sudden, you hear, you know, this very slow, kind of mournful, dun, 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 and the soundtrack on it swells. What is about to happen? Something good's about to happen. How do you know that? But what specifically, what is that music cueing you into? Why? How do you know that? What song did I just hum? It's the national anthem. What's our national anthem about? Victorious specifically in the face of what? I mean, you guys know the story of the National Anthem, right? And all through the night, the flag kept waving and the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, you know, but all through the night, right? That's the whole point is that no matter what, 
no matter how bad it gets, America's going to triumph. And so, you know, even in this movie, when it looks like America's not going to triumph, when you hear that song, you don't even have to hear the whole song. You just have to hear the first couple of notes, and you know because of all of the cultural meaning that's packed into just a few, I mean, literally like five notes of, of a song, right? And, and that, the song carries a tremendous amount of weight. Sort of the same thing when you hear someone go, happy birthday, you're like, to you, happy birthday. Like, you can sing the whole song, and you know, like, all the memories, whatever, probably good, unless your parents continually forgot your birthday, and then it's sad. But, like, you know, for the most part, like, just a few notes of a song bring you a ton of meaning, a ton of impact. And this song would have been no different. This would have been a song like, you know, Victory in Jesus or uh, one of those old standard Christian hymns that all the good church people knew by heart. And if you hear just a few notes of it, it takes you back to tent revivals and that kind of, you know, this would have been the same thing for the Jewish people. This song was a very familiar, very well-known song to them. And so when Jesus said just the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No one, none of the Jewish people, the Romans were probably like, what's he saying? Because they probably didn't speak Aramaic anyway. But all the Jewish people who were around him immediately knew what he was doing. And so we need to look at, in order to understand what he's saying on the cross, in order to get into the heart of Jesus' experience of death, of apocalypse, of the end of his world, of the end of his life, we need to get into what was he saying there in his final moments. So let's read the first eight verses of Psalm 22. It says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you and you rescued them. They cried out for you and were saved. They trusted in you and were never disgraced. But I am a worm and not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads saying, is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. So this is a person who is experiencing the abandonment of God. They're saying I'm in a bad spot and God's not showing up, okay? And you'll notice what's really fascinating here is that Jesus' enemies knew well enough what he was doing that they started playing along with it, right? Because what, what the quotes that are right here, oh, if he relies on the Lord, then let the Lord save him. That's what they say at the foot of the cross. So you get this, that they're doing this real sarcastic, like, oh, buddy, we know what you're doing, so we'll play along with you. They start mocking him, and they start, they start acting out the song with him because of where the song is going. Next, okay, and I know some of you, I heard some of you discussing that there is this real abrupt turn. So hold that in your minds, right, that Jesus had this, you know, this apocalyptic sort of end of the world moment on the cross where he's crying out. He's, he's expressing that feeling of abandonment by God that the, ex, the exiles would have understood, that Adam and Eve experienced out of the garden in Genesis 3, like we talked about, how that's sort of a picture of exile, that Genesis 3 ends with them being exiled from God and exiled from the good space that they lived in with God, right? So he's, he's experiencing this along with humanity, right? So, uh, and so hang on to that. Because before we get to where it goes good, we can talk about the good symbols, right? So we have several. We have creation, which is God ordering the sea, right? God putting the sea in its place and God exercising dominion over the sea. We have the temple as a picture of creation. We also have the church as the symbol of the temple in the New Testament, right? The church is the body of Christ. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit, all of these kinds of things. And we also had the Exodus story, which was a creation story. We saw that, how God defeated the Egyptian gods and led Israel through a sea and then made them into a people by giving them the Torah, the law, the way, the instruction. Right? And that formed them into a people, and he brought them into a land. And so that, that whole Exodus experience from leaving the slavery, the death that they experienced in Egypt, into finally settling into the promised land and having that new life in the promised land, that's a creation story. And Israel understood it as a creation story patterned on what they experienced in Genesis 1 and 2. And so that all leads us, and we saw this, right, how Jesus uh, talks about himself, especially in the Gospel of John, as the temple of God, as the new creation, that his resurrection is a beginning of a new creation story, right? It was the eighth day. It was, this, it was the first day of a new creation week. So you saw all those symbols stacked up. So all of that comes together on the cross in this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, right? This is, this is, this is Jesus's answer to the, the exiles, so let's skip down. I, on your papers, I, I just kind of pulled out a few verses. You kind of start to see where this turn happens. 
Okay, because the psalmist goes on after talking about his abandonment by God to say, yet you brought me safely from my mother's womb and led me to trust you in my mother's breast. I was thrust into your arms at my birth. You have been my God from the moment I was born. Do not stay so far away from me, for trouble is near and no one else can help me. Then down in verse 19, he says, O Lord, do not stay far away. You are my strength. Come quickly to my aid. Save me from the sword. Spare my precious life from these dogs. And then uh, down in verse 23 through 27, this is where it gets really interesting. He says, Praise the Lord, all you who fear him. Honor him, all you descendants of Jacob. Show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them, but he has listened to their cries for help. I will praise you in the great assembly. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of those who worship you. The poor will eat and be satisfied. All who seek the Lord will praise him. Their hearts will rejoice with everlasting joy. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. So there's this clear, dramatic turn in the tone of the song, right? It goes from this experience of abandonment by God to this confidence that God is going to intervene in the life of this person, okay? So my question for you is, what is this song about taken from start to finish? What's it, what's it trying to do in the worshiper? What kind of attitude is it trying to correct? Yes, this is ultimately a song about hope, okay? If you had boiled down to one word, you would say hope. Okay, that's the difference. for the Because pe- everyone experiences, like we talked about last week, everyone experiences these sort of apocalypses, whether culturally or personally. Right? These moments when you feel like nothing in your life is certain, where all of the things that gave your life meaning don't give your life meaning anymore. Everyone experiences these things. The difference is whether you will embrace that despair, which if you think all the way back to the week where we talked about all of those different pop culture pieces, you know, the TV show and the book and all of that, that's what a lot of those were saying. They were saying there's no hope. There's no point. You just sort of like... Do the best you can and hope you live a kind of a good life, and that's it, right? So you either you either just sort of embrace that despair or you choose to hope. You choose to say, even though this looks like the end, I know it's not the end, right? And that's what the song is doing. The song is saying that for the people of God, there's this fundamental confidence that God will not abandon the needy, that God will not abandon uh, the suffering, that God will come to the aid of those who follow him and who are faithful to him. Now, why is Jesus quoting that song? On the cross. We know they do. Uh, he's also, I mean, again, we see this from the Jewish leaders, right? This is what they know that he's saying God is going to come through, and they're like, but he got it. Like, God's nowhere to be found for you. So they start, that's why they start playing along with this. Well, they're mocking him, right? They're using, they're using that to mock him. Um, you know, again, in our war scenario, it would be sort of like if one of the guys started singing the national anthem and the enemy troops started singing along and mocking him and be like, oh, yeah, sure, you're going to win the day, buddy. Yeah, yeah, good. You know, that that's that kind of feel. That's why they're doing that. And, you you know, you, you probably remember from the, uh, the, the crucifixion story, right? Some of them are saying, uh, you know, is he calling on Elijah? What's he doing? And some people are like, oh, no, he's calling on God. And then they're like, oh, well, if you're God, why don't you come down? I mean, they, they are actively mocking him because what was at stake? for Jesus was really, this was this was the proof of whether he was right or not, right? He kept saying all along, I am the way, I am the way, I am the way, right? I am God, follow me, do, the, do it this way. This is what God really meant. And it ended up getting him killed. And so from a lot of people's perspective, it was like, well, I guess he was wrong. Because he kept saying, you know, those who, those who are in me have life. And he didn't have life. He got, he got killed. So not just for him, but for everyone around him, it sure looked like this was the end and that God had abandoned him. So he calls out this song that seems to initially embrace that, but it's but anyone who knew the song knew right away, well, that's not what the song's actually about. The song's not fundamentally a song of despair. The song is fundamentally a song of hope. And Jesus is claiming, even on the cross, that he's going to be vindicated, that God's going to come through and prove and they kept they asked him for that, right? Well, if you're God, if you're right, why don't you summon the armies of heaven to come down and pull you off the cross, right? And he's like, no, that's not how this story ends. But that was what was at stake on the cross, and that was that was what was going on in the quoting of the song and how people were hearing it and all of that, is that Jesus is fundamentally saying, you watch. Yeah, so when we say singing, it was probably, I don't know how many of you have ever been to temple or something like that. It was probably almost 
we we would hear it more like a chant. But it was rhythmic. It probably had some toning in it, you know. But it not it wasn't like what we think of as singing songs in church today. But yeah, it was for them. It was definitely not, you know. It wasn't like I can sit in here and say four score and seven years ago or four. You know, I can quote a speech. It wasn't like that. It wasn't like when we quote John three sixteen back and forth or something like that. It was more like a song for them. Yep, that's exactly right, and that's why they did that. Now, also keep in mind part of the reason that this is make us feel a little bit better about ourselves. But they were they were a non-literate culture for the most part, and a non-literate culture has a much uh, better what we would call like a photographic memory than literate people do. That's one of the crutches that the technology of literacy uh, offers us is when we can write things down, we have to remember. So, and again, the, the greatest example of this is how many phone numbers you had memorized before you got a cell phone and how many phone numbers you have memorized now, right? Um, I mean, it's, it, there's a, for me, at least, there was a dramatic difference. I have like two memorized now, mine and my wife's, and before I had like probably 50 or 60 or something like that. So um, anyway, that's, that's an example of how moving to a new technology takes away some of that ability. And literacy is the same way. Non-literate cultures have much better memories uh, and much more identity. Uh, photographic memory than than literate cultures because we don't need to because we just write stuff down. So, okay, so we get on the cross on Psalm 22. Okay, so so what that's telling us then is that and we've seen this before, right? But that Jesus is the new creation in all of these ways. The 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 themes, the symbols of world, of kingdom, of temple, of house, of body that all get stacked up in the person of Jesus. All of these things are being made new. Everything from the individual person to the entire world. So. Um, a couple of sessions ago, we looked at when we were talking about exile and the destruction of the temple, we looked at Ezekiel's vision of the restoration of the temple. So I'm going to read that for you again real quick. It's uh, Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. It's not in your in your paper, so you can just listen to it. Um, but li listen and try to try to visualize what's going on in this passage. OK, um, that's why I wanted you to listen to it. So this is, again, Ezekiel. This is after the exile. The temple has been destroyed. Jerusalem has been destroyed. God, uh, there was that dramatic scene where God got in his divine chariot and left the temple, right, abandoned it to, to the Babylonians. And now in this very lengthy vision at the end of Ezekiel, he's seeing God's promise of a new temple. Okay, so here's what happens. In my vision, the man who's showing him all this stuff brought me back to the entrance of the temple. There I saw a stream flowing east from beneath the door of the temple and passing to the right of the altar on its south side. The man brought me outside the wall through the north gateway and led me around to the eastern entrance. So again, this, this temple, temple faced east, and the water is flowing out from the east of the temple and out of the eastern gates of the temple. So it's flowing kind of towards the Mount of, Mount of Olives. Beyond that is the Judean desert, and it's just desert, 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 desert. Okay? So... Uh, there I could see the water flowing through the south side of the east gateway. He asked me, have you been watching, son of man? Then he led me back along the riverbank. When I returned, I was surprised by the sight of many trees growing on both sides of the river. This is in the desert. Then he said to me, the river flows east through the desert into the valley of the Dead Sea. The waters of this stream will make the salty waters of the Dead Sea fresh and pure. There will be swarms of living things wherever this river flows. Fish will abound in the Dead Sea, for its waters will become fresh. Life will flourish wherever this water flows. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow along both sides of the river. The leaves of these trees will never turn brown and fall, and there will always be fruit on their branches. There will be a new crop every month, for they are watered by the river flowing from the temple. The fruit will be food, and the leaves for healing. Okay. So you have that, that picture, that image of this new temple in your mind. So I want to show you a couple of other visions in the New Testament to make use of this. The first one is in John 7. Um, this is at the end of, I think, the Feast of Tabernacles, the end of one of the feasts. Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's at Herod's temple, the second temple, the one that's been rebuilt. Right, And on the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Now when he said living water, he was speaking to the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. The Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. Now, what's happening here is that Jesus is acting out Ezekiel's vision. He goes and he stands on the temple steps, and then he says, 
basically he says, I have a river, a living river flowing out of me, and anyone who comes and drinks from it will have life. Right? And that is essentially Ezekiel's vision, right? That there's this river of water, of living water flowing from the temple. And then uh, Jesus does something, or that, that, sorry, not Jesus, but the editor, the one who's writing this, puts in this nice parenthetical notation to say, now when Jesus said living water, what he was talking about was the spirit, who of course at this point in the story had not yet come into the world. Jesus hadn't given him yet, right? But, he was, but by the time they were writing the story down, they had access to the Holy Spirit. So, so he's making this, and, and this is, by the way, the Gospel of John is the same gospel that the story of the woman of the well is. And you remember there was this really strange conversation about living water, right? Jesus is waiting at the well. The woman comes to the well. Jesus says, hey, can I have a drink? And she's like, whoa, you should not be talking to me. He's like, well, if you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for a drink, not the other way around. And she's like, you don't even have a bucket to get a drink with. Why would I ask you for a drink? And he goes, well, anyone who drinks of the water I give them will not die but have eternal life. And she's like, I don't understand what's happening. You know the rest of the story, right? But there's this, again, this living water conversation that John uses over and over and over again. And here we see that what he what he tells us that what Jesus means by the living water that Jesus offers is, of course, the Holy Spirit. So here's one instance in the New Testament that draws specifically on Jesus, or uh, sorry, Ezekiel's vision of the new temple. And we have Jesus, who is the new temple, right, acting out this vision. He goes and stands on the steps of Herod's temple and offers this living water to everyone. Okay, does that make sense? All right. So then, here's what I want you to do next. Uh, go ahead and get back into your groups for just a minute and work through just the first part, that Revelation passage right there, 21, 1 through 7. And you can underline or circle or whatever you want to do as many of the symbols that we've been talking about in this class as you can find in there and talk about a little bit about what they mean and, and all of that. So work in your group. I'll give you probably about three or four minutes to do this. Um, I'll tell you what, I'll read it out loud for you so we can all read it together first. Uh, so you can outline a circle as you go along if you want or you just wait. So this is the very, very end of the scriptures. This is the last two chapters of the Bible. This is John's final vision. Evil has been defeated. Uh, the beast and the false prophet and Satan have been cast into the lake of fire along with all of their followers. And this is it. Okay. So John says, then after all of that, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone. Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. All right, so uh, take about three or four minutes, discuss what's in there, what you see going on in there, anything that stuck out to you that you thought was cool, and uh, we'll bring it back together, because there's several cool things going on. Okay, let me hear what you guys came up with. There's a bajillion awesome things in these passages. So, um, all right, tell me what some of the things you guys saw were. How about this group over here? What's some of the stuff you guys saw? Okay, yeah, there's no more C, right? And uh, again, I think I told you guys this before, but every time I teach on Revelation and we get to this part, people are really sad because they love the beach, myself included. Is that what it means? Is that is the God's anti-beaches? <laughs> yeah, right? No, <laughs> no, no. no. It, yeah, that's right. Chaos and death are gone forever. They're not part of the new creation. Very good. Yeah, what else? New creation, glory, new glory. Very good. Yeah. What else? What about the bride? I heard someone say something over here about it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, we only touched on that briefly, briefly, briefly in here. Does anyone remember the context? In what context did we discuss? Idols, right? Remember that idolatry was adultery? 
and that Israel is the bride of Christ. And so here we have a beautiful, spotless, pure bride. She's completely free of any sort of idolatry, right? She's totally holy for God. Very good. Very, very good. What else? <laughs> uh, either group. I, we, yeah, you guys can share some stuff too if you want. What about, what about God's home? What is God's home? The temple. The temple, right? God's home is the temple. That's God's house. Um, and that's coming down. Now, go back to the very, very first week of the class. Those of you who are here for that. We kind of talked about the three-tiered universe, right, and how heaven was up here and earth was down. What's happening here? Everything's coming together. And the celestial temple is descending out of heaven and coming down to earth. And so no longer is there going to be separation. Where is God living? Among his people, right? Um, and if that's starting to sound familiar, it should. So... Uh, of course, also you saw the springs of the waters of life, right? Again, another image that's coming back into, into play. Uh, go ahead and look down now at the last. Uh, this I skipped ahead because there's a bunch of very detailed description in Revelation 21 about columns and gates and things like that. So I kind of skipped. Uh, so here's some more of the vision uh, describing the uh, describing the church or the city. It says, Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street, and on each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, which should sound familiar from Ezekiel, right? Uh, with a fresh crop for each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations, which is, again, exactly what Ezekiel prophesied. No longer will there be a curse on anything, for the throne of God and his Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. And there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun. For the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. So what's fascinating about this particular vision is that this is the Garden of Eden. right? We have the Tree of Life, right, which we haven't seen since Genesis 3, right? since that first exile, since that first apocalypse. We have not seen Genesis 3 since then, and now God has redeemed and made holy every human action, human invention, human innovation, right? We don't just go back to a garden. Now we have a city. And every part of human culture, God has redeemed and restored. God has perfected and removed the stain of sin from, because now there's no more sin. There's no more death. There's no more chaos. So this, this, is, this is the end. This is what we're looking forward to. This is what we're anticipating. And it, it stacks on Jesus' uh, announcement in John 7, and it stacks on Ezekiel's prophecy in, uh, of the new temple. This, this is the new world, the new temple, the new kingdom, the new creation, the new people of God. And it's not here yet, right? But it's coming. So the question is, what do we do? And the good news is that we don't have to wait for the end to begin to experience it now. I was wondering, yeah, go ahead, Steve. But I thought you were going somewhere different with it. Uh, this is a very clear callback to the cross. Because, because right, here's, and here's, here's exactly the tension that I was going to drive towards anyway, right? The reality is Jesus said it is finished on the cross, and then it's been 2,000 years of stuff happening. So, okay, something got finished, but obviously not everything was finished because we're not here yet. We're not in the heavenly city. We're not in a world that's free of death and pain and chaos, right? So that you have you have you have that what you have Jesus' words on the cross, and you have these words at the end of the scriptures framing us. We're in between those two things, right? And that's where that's what I want to kind of finish our time together. I'm talking about the fact that we live in this reality. We live in the reality between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. It's it's like we it's in many ways. It's like we are living on the day that Jesus slept in the tomb, right? On that, on that holy Sabbath day between death and resurrection, between Good Friday and Easter. We're waiting. We're anticipating. And then again, we can choose to wait as those who have no hope, who think that Good Friday was the end of it, that my God, my God has forsaken me. Or we can wait as the people who have hope, who know that even when the, light, the night seems the darkest, the dawn is always coming. Right? And that even though we know that this world is broken and painful and horrible in a lot of ways, that it's not the end. That there is something better coming. That in the end, God will rescue and redeem and restore every hurt, every scar, every 
every pain, right? And weave them into something beautiful. So, so what we need to ask then is how do we live in this tension between the death of the old world and the birth of the new world, right? So look with me at 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says here, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. Uh, the, the actual Greek reads, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. New creation. This is creation language. Right? If anyone, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person, a new creation. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. He gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. So the church is the embassy of God's kingdom, right? We're, we're, a, little, we're, we're a little island of the kingdom of God in the middle of the kingdoms of the world. I mean, you guys all know how embassies work, right? They're, when you go into the embassy in Washington, D.C. for Germany, you're not in the USA anymore, right? You're in Germany. It's sovereign territory. And Paul says that's how churches work. Churches are outposts, embassies of the kingdom of God. When we are here, when we are gathered together, we're in the kingdom of God. And when we go out, we go out as ambassadors, we go out representing God to the people. This is the same picture that we saw in Genesis chapter 1, right? We are the image of God, the picture of God, the representation of God, the ambassador of God. Whatever metaphor works best for people, right? When people see us, they ought to be seeing God. And what Paul specifically says here is that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sin against them anymore, right? And we have the awesome privilege of bearing that message, of being able to plead with people on behalf of God, right? Come back to God. The good news is that in Jesus, there is now no longer any condemnation for those who believe in him, right? That there is no longer only death and hopelessness and despair. Now there is life and promise and hope. That's, that's good news. And we are, the, we are the people who bear that message. That's what it means to be the church. Right? That's, that's our job. And, and again, I think the image of the body of Christ works really well, right? Because what is a body? A body is a thing that you can point like, this, this is my body. You can interact with me because I have a body that you can see and hear, right? High five. And so when the, when the church is called the body of Christ, we can, we can realistically ask, where is Christ in the world today? And say, Christ is wherever the church is. Because we're his body. We are how Christ interacts with the world. Not, not the only way but the main way, right? So, take a look at Romans 8. Paul in Romans 8 says, What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. So, here again, hear the language of Paul. Paul is framing the Christian experience in terms of Jesus' death and resurrection. Right? What we are suffering now, what Christ suffered on the cross, is nothing compared to the glory that's coming later. Right? What Christ suffered on the cross is nothing compared to the glory that was revealed when he was exalted and ascended to the throne of heaven. Right? So too with us. What we experience now, the pain, the heartache, the despair, it's nothing compared with the glory that God has in store for us. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. We, heard, we got a little picture of that in Revelation, right? That future day. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. When did that happen? Yeah. Cursed is the ground because of you. Right? That was what God... And so, so here, Paul says, right? All creation against its will was subjected to the curse of God. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. 
So we too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. Okay, so Paul likens our Christian life to something that only about half of us in the room can relate to, and that's childbearing pains, labor pains, right? So basically, you can, you can stretch out the metaphor, right? Are labor pains fun? No, they are not fun. That's what I hear. Um, <laughs> um, are they worth it, moms? Yes. Yes, they are. Resounding yes. Unquestionably yes, right? Is, are the pains of childbirth any kind of comparison with the glory that is your children? Not even close, right? And so Paul says, in the same way, the pains that we suffer now are labor pains. It is, it is the new creation that is being born out through the, the sacrifice of Christ, right? And that's how we ought to look at all of our present suffering, at all of our present circumstances, at all of the terrible things that are going on in the world, that these are birth pains, right? That the Spirit of God is living and active in the world and is even now creating something new, that on the day that Jesus rose from the dead, all of creation began to be made new, that all of creation began to be released from the curse that it had been subjected to unwillingly, and that we too, even when we groan, we're groaning along with creation and we're groaning in labor pains, right? Not in death pains, because we know that something new is coming and that we, as God's children, are the first inheritors of that, right? We will receive one day the full inheritance that God has promised us, and then he says provocatively, including our new bodies. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of times we think that the end is like up in heaven somewhere like where we're all just like spirits or something. But what we saw in Revelation is heaven comes down to earth and God lives with us in new bodies. We have we, It's a physical new creation, which shouldn't surprise us much because that's what God set up in the first place, right? A creation. And he walked with us in the garden and things like that, right? So, so we see in the end, this is again a very, God's putting things back the way they were always meant to be. Um, just redeemed and perfected and restored and new and so much more gloriously new than we could possibly imagine compared to what we're suffering right now. That's hope. Yes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, there will be no chaos. There will be no death. Okay. Now, but, 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 we do not wait while we sit around and twiddle our thumbs. Right? Uh, Paul says that we have the Holy Spirit as a down payment. Uh, he, he calls it a future how many do any, I go to movies like a lot? I'm sure you guys are surprised by that, right? But does anyone at the movies love the previews? Right? You do? Here's the crazy thing to me about previews at the movies the previews at the movies are almost always better than the actual movies. Have you guys noticed this? Um, I think there should be a separate set of awards for people who cut trailers because there's some certain level of genius of being able to take a just terrible movie and make it seem interesting enough for me to go plop down my five bucks on you know, Wednesdays for it or something like that. Um, and in a much better way than that, that's what Paul is saying the Holy Spirit is for us. Holy Spirit is a sneak preview, right? When we have the Spirit as believers, we have a preview, a foretaste, in Paul's words, of that Revelation 21 and 22 vision, right? Do we experience it fully? No, Paul says we don't yet have our full inheritance, but we have a foretaste. We have a preview. So when we utilize our spiritual gifts to serve our brothers and sisters in the church, that's a foretaste of what the, the new Jerusalem is going to be like. When we experience the power of the Spirit moving in our lives in worship or in service or in community, we are experiencing a sneak preview of what the church is going to be in the end. And so I think there's a lot of ways in which that vision that we have of the church in Revelation 21 and 22 should be a guide for how we do church now. You know, because we have the Holy Spirit. We don't have to wait. We have, as Paul says somewhere else, the same power that raised Christ from the dead living within us, active among us. There should be no end to the wonders that we can accomplish in his name if we have the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Right? The same power that began the new creation. The same power that is even now bringing about the new creation among us. So, here's what I want you to do. One more time in your groups. Um, actually, not one more time. There's one more time and then one more time after that. So second to last time in your groups. Go back to the, the description of the New Jerusalem and uh, that, that you have in those two passages right there. Um, and just spend a few minutes looking at the qualities and the attributes of 
the of the final creation, right? The things that just really stick out to you. And then talk about what those could look like in the church today, right? If we have the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is giving us a sneak preview of that, then what might that look like today? Does that make sense? Okay, just, and again, there's no, I'm not, we're not grading this, right? There's no right and wrong answers. I just want you to consider, you've been a part of a church. You are a part of a church now. So what could it look like for the church to be acting out John's vision of the end now? Understanding, of course, that this is a preview, right? Not the, not the main attraction. All right, have some fun with that. Give you about five, five or six minutes to do that. And we're going to do a couple more things to close up. Yeah. Absolutely. That's right. <laughs> Good. What else? What other? What else? Well, how about you guys? What stuck out to you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's some of the big ones that stick out, right? Um, yeah. If the water is the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit, right? Um, you could ask that, you know, are we giving thirsty people what they need to drink? Right? It was a similar question to what Janie just kind of phrased, right? But it's that um, it's that kind of same idea, right? Is, is the way we are presenting the good news about Jesus something that, you know, usually when thirsty people see water, they don't have to be like, is that, should I drink that or not? You know, they just go, yep, that's what I need. Is, is the way we are presenting the good news about Jesus that clear? That, that exciting, that inviting, that refreshing, you know, to thirsty people. We know it was when Jesus did it because he was constantly surrounded, bombarded by people who uh, needed it, who were desperate for it, who were thirsty, right? So, good. Okay, so I want to do one more kind of experiment with you guys. First of all, um, I think I put down at the bottom of that second to last page the, uh, a very familiar parable. It comes at the very end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so he has just given this. Now remember, this was he was sitting on the mountain giving his new Torah, right? He's the new Moses giving his new Torah. He has his 12 tribes sitting around him, all of this. And he has just given this new way, this new instruction that we now call the Sermon on the Mount, right? And at the very end of all of that, he says, and I don't have it in front of me, so I'm going to paraphrase it, excuse me. He says, if anyone hears my words and acts on them, he is like a man who builds his house on a rock. Now, for those of you who are not uh, well-versed in ancient Near Eastern architecture, uh, they did not have good materials to build foundations, especially if you were you know, poor or like even like relatively poor. And so if you didn't want a house that would settle and shift and sink and crack and all the things that houses without foundations do, you went out and found a big rock. Right? You dug around in your field, you found a big rock, and once you found a big rock, you put your house on top of the rock because that way your house wouldn't crack and settle and do all of the bad things that houses with bad foundations do. So Jesus says, if you hear my words and believe them, you're like that person. You're like a person who finds a rock and builds their house on it. So when the rains and the winds come and the storms come, the house stays firm. If you know, he hears my words and does not do them, like someone who builds their house on sand, which would have been, you know, the rest of the soil. You get tired of digging. You're like, you know what? This place is as good as any other. You put your house on the sand. And then what happens? When the rains come and the winds blow and the storms come, house collapses. Mighty was the fall. So that's what Jesus, I mean, again, when we understand who Jesus is, that he is the world, the temple, the creation, the kingdom, the body, all of these things all together, and that his way is not just some ideas that a guy said one time, but that he is the living, creative word of God incarnate, giving us the way that we were created to live. That's why what he says is true, right? Because he's the one that created us. He's the one who knows what will lead us to life and what will not lead us to life, what will lead us to death. And so he offers us his way. and He says, if you do these things, you will have a life that flourishes. You will have a life that withstands those apocalyptic moments, right? You will have that kind of a hope that does not say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But says, I know that God comes to the defense of the need. That's what that's what following Jesus is all about. And that's the good news for everyone. All of the times that we've come back into the present day and looked at how our culture is so uh, riddled with pessimism and despair. Right. That's why Jesus's 
good news is still good news today. We have a lot of people who don't know how to hope, who don't know what it means to look to the future. They don't have any sense that the world's going anywhere but nowhere, right? And so they don't have hope. And that's what we can offer. We can offer hope, not a blind optimism that just says, oh, if you follow Jesus, nothing bad ever happens to you. Right? I, I still have no idea how that got started when Jesus, who was the only person who ever perfectly followed the way of God, got crucified. So I don't, I don't know where we got this idea that if you follow God's way, you'll have an easy life. Right? So we don't have a blind optimism that, that whistles you know, as Rome burns or whatever. I mixed some metaphors there. Uh, is it whistling through the graveyard? What is that metaphor? Something? Okay, whatever. Whistle while you, yeah, whatever. Yeah, there's some whistling happening while bad things are there. Yeah. Anyway, we don't have that sort of blind optimism. We have we have a hopeful confidence that no matter how bad things get, even even if even at the end of the world, even at the loss of all things, even in death, that God is able and willing to bring life for those who love. Him. Right? That's Romans eight twenty eight. Right? I am confident that God works all things according to the purpose, or according to good for the for those who love him are called according to his purpose, right? Not if you follow God, only good things happen to you, but that God works all things for good. Evangelist yep. Yep. So here's the last thing I wanted to leave you with. Um, the, the way, the way this class started in my mind and in my heart was through this last song. Um, it's actually not called deliverance. It's called come back soon. I had a typo there for you. Um, there's one other typo, the, like the fourth to last. <laughs> yeah. Um, it also, like the fourth or fifth to last line, it says, we cannot sing with these broken lungs, but actually we cannot breathe with these broken lungs. I found that when I was listening to it again. That's Thanks, Internet, for leading us astray um, with your wrong words. Anyway, um, this song is by a guy named Andrew Peterson. Do any of you listen to him or know him? Okay, you should all change that. He is one of... He is seriously, seriously, one of the most theologically profound lyric writers that's alive today. Um, his lyrics are just beautiful. He has probably, like, I don't know, eight or nine albums out at this point. I found him uh, uh, in college or something like that. And every single album that he's put out has just been profound and beautiful and uh, incredibly, incredibly spiritual. Uh, he is he's incredibly thoughtful and deep. And, and as, I, as I listened to the song and I got to know this song, um, I was just staggered by the number of biblical symbols that he stacked up in this song and gave an incredible amount of meaning. Uh, so what I would like you to do one last time in your groups as a way of saying goodbye to everyone and thank you for being in the groups, go through this song together, just kind of read through it together and look at some of the symbols, kind of underline and circle some of the stuff that, you, that you're like, oh, I recognize this. We've been talking about this. Um, and then I want to talk about it with you a little bit. And I'd like for us just to listen to it together. Because I think when you add the music to it, uh, it's, it's just a really, really beautiful song. So um, have at it. Have some fun with this. This is just like a, uh, a free, fun application. Uh, I, hope it's, I hope you enjoy getting to experience this music together. Uh, and again, this, is, this was the song that just, I don't know if you care, but this was the song that for me birthed the idea of this class. And so I thought it would be appropriate to end the class by sharing it with you. So, uh, so talk about the lyrics together. We'll come back together in about five minutes and then we'll play the song. Oh, yeah, I guess I should tell you guys a little bit about the setting of the song. Uh, Andrew Peterson lives in Nashville, and uh, this was after that big flood that happened there a few years ago that was really devastating. And so the genesis of the song is that he's walking with one of his young sons out after the flood, and they come around a corner and see a dog eating a little bird. And that was his son's first encounter with death. And so that's like that, you know, and he's like, oh, and the kid's like, Daddy, why is, you know, and he has to sort of be like, oh, well. So that's that. That's what's going on in that verse. Okay, let me hear what you talked about. I'll run off you a few of my thoughts, and then uh, we'll close with the song. So, what were the things that really stuck out to you that you were just like, "Oh yeah, this makes a lot of sense." Nothing. <laughs> okay, the darkness. What about the darkness? Okay, it's all around. What's that? Groaning. Groaning in the darkness. Okay. The sea. Yeah. Sea is death. Death and dark. All of those are all kind of packed together, right? Um, 
I think it's fascinating. This song is essentially mourning uh, the reality of death, right? I mean, this is a father who witnessed, who was there when his son lost his innocence forever, right? Totally unexpectedly, totally out of nowhere. Totally in the middle was probably a very nice, beautiful parent-child moment, right? And then all of a sudden, the kid can never go back. He can never go back to that place of innocence, just like uh, humanity with the Garden of Eden, right? And you have that in that second verse right there, right, where the boy stood at the gate with the angel on guard and wept for the death of his little boy heart, his innocence, right? That, that sounds a lot like Genesis 3 with the angel guarding the gateway into Eden, and we can't, get, we can't go back there. Right? Death is now a reality for us. We've lost that innocence. We've lost that life with God. And so then he goes into that, that chorus kind of thing where he talks about how we are in the night. We're in the womb and we're kicking and we're thrashing and we're begging. You know, we're begging to be born. Right, We're groaning for deliverance. Um, then he talks a little bit about fall and winter and the turn to winter and how everything dies and how you know, anytime that season comes around, at least for me, you just die a little bit too. You're like, oh. I know some people love winter. But um, you just get that. And, he, and again, he, he equates that experience of death in the seasons to that, that death in the world and praying for a return to life. Come back, come back soon, come back soon, come back soon, which is how, by the way, how the book of Revelation ends, right, with that final prayer. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Um, so, so the last part, that, that big, um, it, when you'll hear it in the song, it's this big build and this big crescendo that's just awesome. So he starts with this quote from Alfred Lloyd Tennyson. Nature's red in tooth and claw. Now, Tennyson, it was in a poem that Tennyson wrote, and it was actually published just before Darwin published The Origin of Species. And he was struggling with, if God is love and if God is life, how come death seems to be so much a part of the creation world? You know, how come 50 seeds fall and only one grows? Right? How come, how come animals live off of other animals? How come people kill other, you know? And so he coined this term, nature's red in tooth and claw. And what that meant was that death seems to be a normal part of things. And of course, in the theory of evolution, that's a kind of an you know, underpinning, right? That natural selection works on the idea that death is a normal, ordered part of creation. And so, and so Andrew Peterson here saying, if, if that's the case, if, nature's, if that's nature, if nature is inherently violent, it seems to me that she's an outlaw, right? That this isn't okay, that this is, this is wrong. Because every death is a question mark, right? Every death makes us pause and goes, is that, is that really right? Is that really how things are supposed to be? Is that really what reality is supposed to look like? And then, of course, he goes into saying that we can't know the answer. It's too big for us. It's too much for us. So what do we do? We kick in the womb and we beg to be born. When we're faced with death, when we're faced with chaos, when we're faced with despair, we don't know the answers. Right? They're too big for us. They're too much for us. So what we do is we pray. Come back soon. Come back soon. So... I would like to say, before we play this song, thank you guys for being a part of this class. It's been awesome. I've really loved getting to go through this journey with you. And uh, we usually end in prayer every week, but I would really like for this song to be our prayer tonight. So I'm just going to play it and let you guys experience it. And when it's over, um, we're free to go. So.